really appreciate the time, dude. I got to say at, at one 30, I was like, I wonder if I should DM him the message if he remembers, but like a true professional, John huh. Annick showed up at one always early. I love it, man. And I appreciate it. Cause I know how busy you are, man. Of course, my man. Well, right on the screws, you got to be on time. You know, it was funny. I was doing a show with my twin brother for the first time and it wasn't live. It was live to tape. We were being interviewed by another individual and my brother shows up like 90 seconds late. And here I'm thinking, this dude's been in the broadcasting space for like a year. And he's already showing up 90 seconds late. So we got a few things to teach the twin bro. But it's good to see you, man. And uh, it's good to see that you're still sort of uh, dabbling in this mixed martial arts space. Because I know you were, um, you know, jockeying for position and bouncing around a little bit. But we're happy you're back in the space. Yeah, man, it means a lot coming from you as well. You know, you were a guy that I always look forward to seeing at events and everything. It's funny, like, Bumping into you, it, you're always you were always happy to see me, which I always appreciated. Always happy to talk and everything. And I've heard that with so many other people that that's how you are at events, man. And I know how that's got to be for you because the events are so insanely busy, and your preparation is so detailed. And I know how much time you put into it. How do you maintain the energy just to be a people pleaser on the side as well? Like 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 we were just saying, like when you saw me, you know, you'd always make time to stop and chat for a while, catch up. And it seemed like you honestly knew what I was doing at the time and were actually following, you know, how do you invest time on a personal level like that? Well, it's a challenge. I mean, it's one that I have certainly embraced. And there was certainly a time in my career where I would answer the bell for any podcast or radio invitation that came in almost blindly, right? Um, and that has kind of changed, right? The process has evolved a little bit and it's kind of had to, you know, recently I had an interaction with someone on social media and a fan said, oh, I'm going to meet John Anik at this show. And one of his buddies was like, come on, man, just come shake the dude's hand. And it's like, little do you know, I've been following your buddy for two years. I know exactly who he is, but to your point, fight weeks are so crazy that sometimes it's hard to break off a quarter of an hour for a singular UFC fan, you know? Um, but it comes with the territory. I think as your profile increases, there are more people that sort of want a piece of you. Um, and that's kind of the way it goes. But I just feel a, a tremendous connection to people like you who've obviously been in the space for a while and to the MMA space as a whole and a fan base that has supported me, you know, to such an extent over the last 10 years so um you know some think think it's an inconvenient truth of the business you know bruce buffer's always saying to me walk tall man don't walk with your head down and it's like hey man i'm not trying to have you know a photo shoot before i go eat my chinese food but um <laughs> i obviously i enjoy every part of the job and uh and all the sort of benefits and and connections that come with it yeah i think that's one of the things that truly resonates from your being is that you genuinely enjoy the job. And I think that's what people are so attracted to, you know, naturally as humans, we like dealing with other humans who enjoy what they're doing. You know, when you're in good spirits and always projecting that positive energy, I mean, you got a freaking 209 tattoo just because ah. it was a, a bet. Like that's the level John Anik will go to, to please the masses. So I think that positivity is definitely playing a huge part into why everybody does want to shake your hand and want to meet you at events and things like that. But like you said, sometimes you, you got to draw that line somewhere. How much does that break your heart, though, to do that? Is that tough it's for you to really do? really hard, you know, and I'm in a situation right now where as soon as the pay-per-view ends, I go up and host the ESPN Plus post show. And so I'll have, you know, a production assistant who's trying to get me on a television set in 300 seconds. And the fans don't understand that, you know, and so I'll, you know, be getting in an elevator. I'm like, hit me up on social media. We'll connect there. I'll meet you after an event. But it's... uh. 
I, I can't emphasize enough how much I appreciate the fan support and to have that intimate connection is something that I think is a little bit unique to mixed martial arts. You know, certainly there are fan bases in the NFL and other leagues that have relationships with their radio play-by-play guy that they've listened to for years or their local TV play-by-play guy. But I think for a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, for example, you're getting a different play-by-play guy every Sunday, you know? Um, And for the most part with the UFC, you're getting one or two guys. So we definitely feel an obligation as the forward-facing people of this company doing, you know, 20 plus shows a year um, to be there and to, to be reachable and to, to be accessible. And um, you know, hopefully I am that at least in part. It's funny because I think about kind of how it all started with you as far as you getting on my radar as an MMA fan were those old MMA live chats on ESPN. And I I distinctly remember I had a flip phone at the time, but it was one of those early flip phones that had like a few apps and there was actually an ESPN app. And I remember standing at work just like texting in questions from my flip phone at the time. And it's just really funny how it evolved, man. But do you feel that that being one of your earliest kind of introductions to the MMA space makes you more personable in that way, because you've been interacting with fans from the jump. And it's funny. You mentioned that chat format and I appreciate you doing so I've been trying to get back to it. It's sort of a unique thing. And those sports nation chats at ESPN.com were uh, very highly populated, very unique. You know, there would be times where in an hour I'd have 10,000 questions. I mean, it was a crazy avalanche those chats when they were at their height and in their prime um but yeah i think it enabled me certainly to connect with a lot of emerging mma fans in 2007 8 9 and 10 when the sport at least to me was in its infancy even though other people would probably you know turn their nose up at that but yeah that was a great way to obviously connect with fans and i think it speaks to how long you and i have sort of been in the space because at the end of the day joe rogan calls us professional fans right Mm -hmm. and that's really what we are like I have a 209 tattoo largely because I'm an MMA fan and I don't care who knows it, right? I mean, there's a bigger, longer story that we're not going to get into, um, but it won't be my last tattoo bet on a mixed martial arts contest of that, I can assure you. So <laughs> I think that resonates with people, you know, hopefully that comes across on the broadcast because, you know, whether I'm the guy on the mic or I'm sitting home on my couch, I'm going to be buying every UFC pay-per-view um, as long as I live. It's beautiful, man. And and as anybody who follows you knows, you're a huge sports fan in general, you know, Patriot Boston boy, born and bred. You're not no, no shame about it, which on this Pittsburgh combat sports podcast might, you might have listeners tuning out right now. So uh-huh. I say that, but, uh, well, but, I didn't wear my Patriots gear on purpose. So, um, it's greatly appreciated. Shirt right before the show, I, I took my <laughs> Belichick t-shirt off. <laughs> Did you have a cutoff hoodie? Was it a cutoff hoodie you were going to uh-huh. wear? I think it says like always bet on bill or uh, where there's a bill, there's a way, but enough about that noise. How's Mike Tomlin doing? Right. That's for, hey, I, yeah. I mean, not their year. I like Tomlin. It's not their, yeah. Most people do. I think Pittsburgh's hilarious. And I'm sure new England's the same. Boston's the same. They lose one game and the sky's falling and they need to fire everybody and, and rebuild. I mean, that's just the passionate fan base for anything. It's crazy what ha- has happened in new England. Right. Because, uh, you know, in Belichick, we trust and we have for so long. And and I think Tomlin has a lot of that. You know, he's established so much goodwill that there's sort of a blind trust with some people. Obviously, other people have called for change there for a while. Uh, I know. But I think at the end of the day, one of the hardest parts about being an NFL coach is being a head coach, I should say, is that you're the leader of men and not just, you know, kids, but you're the leader of grown men. How are you getting 37 year old men potentially to buy in? And I think that's what really has, 
has helped Belichick more than anything else. I mean, he's a football savant, but it's his willingness to understand how to relate to men at different ages and command that locker room, even um, if he's a dick at times. So um, I think Tomlin's a tremendous leader of men, even if he isn't the greatest X and O's guys in the, in the world. Yeah, absolutely, man. I think there's there's a really interesting conversation to be had there, not just for Belichick, but you talk about MMA, like being one of the more cerebral sports, I think, out there. You being kind of tuned into the psychology of sports, what's it been like as you get kind of closer to fighters and you can watch these entire career arcs? I mean, you've been with the UFC now for 10 years. You've seen guys literally debut, become top prospects, maybe or not win the belt and then retire like you've been there for entire career spans at this point so what's it been like for you to be a part of that process small as it may be I mean I know you get to meet with these guys become you know friendly if you will with these guys what's what's it been like to that has to be an honor right that you're there every step of the way yeah I mean it makes me feel really goddamn old too. <laughs> the fact that I have been there for you know Khabib Nurmagomedov's UFC debut and then his retirement fight he kind of went out early but yeah, man, I mean, it speaks to obviously a lot of time in the space. It's amazing to think about how much the sport has evolved, how much our live production has evolved. But I've been able to learn so much from my broadcast partners and to have just this intimate um, time with with these elite athletes, you know, Hall of Fame level athletes, right? I've been part of 15 different broadcast combinations or 16, I think it is over 10 years. And some would say, you know, they prefer to have one color guy and sort of build chemistry that way. And I could probably um, lay into that a little bit. But for me, the depth of knowledge or any depth of knowledge that I have acquired largely has been from learning, not just on the broadcast when they're live, but just uh, in hotel rooms and talking to these guys at dinner. You know, these are now my best friends in the world. And I'm thankful that most of them have now retired. So I don't have to call their fights anymore. Hey, very nice, man. I think it's super interesting with your background too, you know, coming from a kind of a pure journalism background and everything. I saw you went to Gettysburg college, by the way, which I didn't know. I grew up about, 35 40 minutes south of chambersburg pa so okay. not not yeah. far from gettysburg man i never knew you were in those neck of the woods what took you there to that college specifically so i did have a friend of mine from high school who had gone there the year prior and that's how it kind of got on my list and then when i went to visit it i just loved the campus and uh love the blonde hair on all of the women. And no, I mean, there were a lot of different factors, but they didn't have a journalism program and I didn't much care. I wasn't necessarily an academic. I mean, I knew I wanted to work in sports and work in media and thought maybe I would major in political science. But then there was this class called methods that I couldn't pass. So I pivoted, created my own major in political journalism. So that got rid of the methods class. And I was able to do some creative writing classes and other things. I did a semester at American University immersed in journalism in Washington, D.C. in 1999. God, I am fucking old. Um, and the rest is history, you know, but I got some valuable career training at different spots, Connecticut School of Broadcasting on the back end um, that helped me sort of narrow my path a little bit. But I knew really when I was 16 years old that I wanted to work in sports media. And I think that helped kind of tunnel my vision from a pretty young age. That's awesome, man. I, and Gettysburg is beautiful. Anybody who's ever been there can certainly attest to that. Are you a big history buff as well? Did that appeal to you, just all the history in that city? It did once I got there. You know, it sure. certainly wasn't a trigger or a driver, but I became pretty obsessed with it, especially early on. And when we did get a day to break away, we would go to battlefields all the time. And uh, no, some, some great memories in Gettysburg. I'm hoping to get back there actually pretty soon, but uh, it's been a while for sure. 
That'd be great, man. It's funny also hearing you say how how old you are. You keep referencing how old you are. When you see a guy like Glover Teixeira, the win the belt, how revitalizing is that for the old guys? Come on, man. Yeah, he's younger than me, Hunter. No, I didn't hear it. But, uh, no it was incredible. And you just kind of knew it was going to happen, right? And not to go down a whole Glover Teixeira path here, but he could have easily retired in 2018, 2019. And he would have been fine with his his MMA center there in Danbury, Connecticut, he didn't have an appetite for training, you know, four years ago. And he was like, all right, I'm going to make one concerted final run at this. I'm going to let some information in. I'm going to sort of change the way I train, train, change the way I recover. And then he breaks through, uh, you know, north of 42. Absolutely incredible. It makes no sense, man. UFC 172 was one of the first events that I ever covered for Bleacher Report. And that was Jones versus Teixeira. And I remember after that fight, just thinking, you know, Glover's pretty good, but he'll never make it back to the top. You just saw, you know, some of those guys that maybe get there, but uh, it, it never seemed like he could possibly get back there, right. especially in 2021. I don't think his story got nearly enough coverage, man. And for you as a broadcaster, like I'm sure you're always aware of these narratives coming in and everything. How do you keep from gushing a little too much? I know the bias is something that every journalism major every journalist has to work with but for you especially because you're not ashamed of your fandom at all like you said you're a professional MMA fan how are you able to keep that away during broadcast to just you know stay reserved stay unbiased as much as possible well ultimately it's a very serious thing I mean we're not fighting wars but we're providing the historical soundtrack for the UFC and for all of these moments. And so when Jan Bohovich goes back and watches a fight with his family years from now and he wins the title, you know, I want that to be a memorable moment for him. You know, Poland, your guy got it done. You know, hopefully that's something that he and his family will look back upon fondly for years to come, you know, but bigger picture, the hardest thing for us, Hunter, is that strikes land simultaneously. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest opening for alleged bias is that you know, maybe you're watching and you're seeing Hunter land and then the other person's watching and I'm landing too. And they're seeing me land, you know? And so that I think opens us up to a lot of criticism, but 99.9% .9 of what we've done over 10 years, we all stand by, you know? Um, certainly it's a little bit of a challenge when I think about navigating the steep a DC trilogy, because it was sort of the height of my friendship with, with Daniel Cormier. We've since sort of gone downhill a little bit, Hunter, but at the time we were very close. Let them know. Let them know. I had a lot of emotions involved in that series but that being said you know i called stipe's first ufc main event in 2012 against stefan struve you know my relationship with stipe goes back way further than dc so there's also connective tissue there and now i find 10 years in that i have emotions and personal connections on both sides you know dominic cruz might be my best friend in mma but pedro munoz is a friend of mine as well so mm -hmm. that's the last thing i'm thinking about once they touch gloves the walkouts can be a little bit challenging especially for a guy like dom because i'm, I'm very emotional i i know his mom i've met his grandma um but it, it is what it is and uh i i i promise you it's it's all the lead up that's harder for me than actually calling the fight that makes perfect sense and it's super interesting because now being back on a regional MMA scene with 247 fighting championships, these local Pittsburgh fighters, you know, these are guys that some of them break through to the next level, you know, like we had Adam Milstead go, Chris Dempsey go, yep. Don Mazzotta and Bellator, Cody Garbrandt, obviously trained in Pittsburgh for a long time. And you develop. It's like comma worthy. Yeah. Com oh, geez. Comma's going to slap. Now I'm going to get kicked ah. by comma worthy. Thanks. <laughs> John DeJesus. Now, now I feel like I need to say everybody's ah. so just in case. 
but yeah, man, it's, it's funny because you develop friendships with them almost. And then on the promoter side, I feel like it, it makes it doubly more difficult because you absolutely can't show bias. Now, now we're talking about financial interests, career path interests, making sure, you know, you cannot set up squash matches. That's literally illegal, unethical, every word you want to use. Yeah. But at the same time, you don't want to send your guy into a fight that you know he's about to get smashed in or anything like that either. So it's crazy interesting, man. It's it's wild to navigate. And exactly like what you were saying, you know Dom's mom, you've met Dom's mom and family and things like that. Right. right. It's almost impossible at a certain level. And do you notice the same thing I do? It's like a football game is one thing. Like if, if your cousin plays football, of course, you're invested a little bit. But like when you're talking about a fist fight, <laughs> an MMA fight, those yeah. emotions just go to 100 instantly. No, there's no doubt about it. And after Daniel got finished by Stipe, you know, there's sort of an exhale, right? And it's like, man, Daniel sort of walking back into his new reality now on the wrong end of this result. And this kind of changes everything here at the end of his career. Um, and yet on the other side, some people argue it's my greatest call ever. Stipe exacts his revenge. So mm -hmm. I don't know that there's any greater example of me staying in my lane and doing the job than that. But we just called a fight with Piotr Jan and Corey Sandhagen, right? And there was alleged bias on both sides, right? So it is what it is. I mean, certainly it's criticism that we take very seriously. And when there's a fight like Israel Adesanya against Jan Blachowicz and fighters think that we're leaning way too much into Adesanya, then maybe I'm quicker to go back and watch that fight after the fact than I otherwise would be. Um, but for the most part, I stand by the majority of the work that, that we've done and um, we're able to keep it clean and, uh, and keep it objective. Yeah, absolutely. Do you wait for significant blowback or like you said feedback on that level to go rewatch a fight or how do you kind of review your tape do you do that is that a normal part of the process for you you go back and listen to, to how you sounded so it's interesting i've done 325 episodes of the anakin florian podcast and i can assure you hunter that kenny florian hasn't listened back to a minute of it maybe he's watched <laughs> a clip on youtube and sure. i'm always telling the guy I got to, I got to listen to myself if I'm going to get better, even though I hate the sound of my own voice at this point, because I have an identical twin and I've heard myself as a broadcaster for so long, but when I'm running, I can like listen to my podcast back a little bit. If I have verbal crutches, if I say I'm too much, you know, is a verbal crutch of mine. But as far as my UFC work is concerned, to your point about Glover Teixeira not getting the shine he deserved after the title win, part of it's because UFC 268 is six and a half days after Glover Teixeira gets belted by Dana White. So for me, there really isn't much opportunity to do that. You know, I can't watch Bellator. I can barely watch the PFL unless I'm supporting my guy, Ken Flo, because I got three kids, 10 or under. And, uh, you know, I got 41 UFC fight nights that I have to immerse myself in. So it's a challenge. There's no doubt about it. There'll be times where my bosses call and say, uh, hey, this was no good, or this coach is unhappy and has levied a complaint. You know, we had a championship coach levy a complaint through the UFC with our broadcast recently. There's some breaking news for you. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, and one thing, you mentioned it right there, and I for sure wanted to get into this, so I'm glad you brought it up. Um, your family. I mean, you're a family man all along, and the travel schedule of the UFC, like we said, the preparation demands alone are insane for this job. You have to absolutely have tunnel vision, which, you know, it's pretty clear that you're able to enter that zone when you need to. But one thing that I think a lot of people struggle with when they kind of chase a dream or chase a job this demanding is balancing family life. It's a very common struggle for people, but seems like you're navigating that very well. What has that process been like to you? Because I'm sure 
when you accept the job 10 years ago, you don't necessarily know it's going to become what it is. You have an idea that it, you know, might get crazy or might, you know, whatever, but you still couldn't have predicted the UFC would be where it is today. So how were you able to evolve, you know, in your relationship, not asking you to divulge personal details or anything, but it's a common struggle for a lot of people. No, and I am still trying to find that balancing act. And sometimes I think I faint happiness, right? Because like it or not, after a live event, um, you know, I get right home and it's back to the family and I got to do a podcast on Monday and, and profess happiness, even if I'm not feeling great or if I have my own mental health things that I'm dealing with. And you're right. You hammered it in terms of the job changing. I didn't think I would go to Brazil 27 times, you know, so it's about 100 nights a year away from the family. And, um, you know, that has its strain. And I think then when I'm home, I try to sort of overcompensate for the time that I'm away. So it's a constant balancing act. And, you know, I got demons. I think every time I leave my house for a live event, um, I have some sort of internal battle um, before I hit the road. Um, And I don't know if that's, because I'm homesick or want to be home. I don't really know what that is, but I do think anytime you're sort of chasing a dream that requires you to whatever degree to step out of your comfort zone, whether that means getting on a metal tube for 15 hours or, you know, getting on a microphone to millions of people, whatever it is, I I do at times step out of an introverted comfort zone a little bit to do what I do. Um, But I don't know that I've mastered anything yet, my man. Sure. I don't know if anybody ever does. That's the interesting thing. As many people as I've ever talked to, along these realms because it's something you know just i i battle with that as well i got married two years ago and we've been dating forever and it's always been a thing in journalism as well there's a lot of traveling a lot of weird hours you know you're never off the clock it's something that i struggle with too and you know i'm very close with all of my family my parents and everything so every time i have to turn down a family event or whatever i feel terrible about it but then it, it, it is what it is like like you said, it's a constant balancing act. And the fact that it seems like you have it so put together, but you're here saying, you know, I'm still figuring it out too. That's encouraging. So, so thanks. Oh, yeah. That. I mean, there's some, some stuff that really goes sideways, you know, and I think too, to have to lean on a babysitter is something that I never wanted to do, but my wife teaches full time and um, yeah, it's a navigation, but it's our world. Right. And it's the devil. We know that's the thing for you and me. Right. I mean, I'm thankful I'm not working overnights at ESPN anymore, you know, seven, a to four P or seven P to four a, whatever it was. Um, But nights and weekends are sort of what comes with the territory and and that ain't changing anytime soon. Yeah. Is there perks to it for the family are they able to travel with you ever and and go to the events or at least you know be around the events because the buzz i think of a ufc event is something that everybody should experience for a kid it's got to be pretty cool to be in that environment so my kids have yet to come to a live event but certainly we're going to do that soon my daughters are now 10 and 8 my son is still a little bit young but yeah my family's been able to come on the road and certainly my twin brother has gone to the last three or four conor mcgregor fights that have not been in abu dhabi and those are obviously big ticket items and um he's a rabid mma fan so it's been cool for the family of course um but I think for them at times, it's just hard to see the perks because our live events are so crazy that it's like, I got to fly in help if I'm bringing my daughters, right? Because I have so much shit to do during fight week. So in terms of not mastering the navigation, that's my next big hurdle, trying to figure out a way to have my daughters come to five or seven of these a year and not have it be such an interference that it uh, that it's counterproductive. You should push for the UFC to start like an official daycare division, you know, for fighters and staff, man, how much that would make a killing, right? 
I'm telling you. Well, you know, it's like, you know, is, is somebody to escort my daughters back to the room after the uh, the main card opener so they can go to bed. No, I mean, there's, uh, <laughs> right. there's no doubt, though. I mean, they they have seen enough MMA on in the house. And, you know, some people, there's so much superficial violence in MMA with the blood. Like, bro, when I watch the NFL, like my family thinks I'm having a heart attack because I watch these collisions at 28 miles an hour. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I can't believe he got up. Right. When I watch MMA, I barely even flinch. And I think largely my daughters are the same way because they've seen it enough. So um, don't let the blood get in your way, folks. It's just superficial. Only one stitch in the back, even though it's a pint of blood on the canvas. I think what puts people's mind at ease on that level is if you talk to some fighters after a fight like that where they sustain a cut or something, they're they're not concerned about it. You know what I mean? It's not like it's a big deal to them. So why would it be a big deal to me? You're the guy with a huge cut on your face. So, (laughs) yeah. Dude, one time at a local Pittsburgh event back in the day, Dom Mazzotta fought for Bellator a few times. He elbowed a guy. I was cage side with my laptop, and he elbowed a guy, cut him, and the blood flew all over my laptop keyboard. And to well, I sold the laptop, but up to the day I sold it, that blood was still there, man. You could not get it off. It was like ingrained in that computer. So have you ever had anything like that, being as close as you guys are? Yeah, I mean, the most blood I've ever gotten on me was – Tony Ferguson against Anthony Showtime Pettis. I actually have the shirt unwashed in my closet right now. That was the only time I can remember, not just getting sprayed frontally with blood or on the notes, but this came up overhead and showered down on us. You know, I leaned down a little bit into the monitor and I had the dollar, a dollop the size of like two half dollars on my back. So we were covered and, um, I don't think I've ever seen Joe Rogan so happy in the broadcast booth. That's beautiful. So you could kind of see it coming like you knew to duck. Well, I'm always sort of crouched down a little bit. Um, So no, I didn't duck. It just, you can't even make it up almost physically how it hit me, but I mean, you should see it, man. It's huge. (laughs) That is, that is crazy. Perks of the job, man. That's like a Disney ride or something like come get sprayed, (laughs) man. That's that's amazing. What's the fight behind? I've been looking at it this whole podcast. I can tell it's Max, but who's Max fighting in that picture right behind? Or is it Ferguson? Is it Ferguson? You know what's funny is that I actually cover up Calvin Cater, my uh, Boston guy, just getting absolutely bludgeoned by Max yeah. Holloway. I that piece is going to be replaced pretty soon by a piece that uh, an artist did on me and and Daniel Cormier and Joe. Uh, but yeah, I sit strategically to honor Max who Mm -hmm. turned in what I believe behind me is the greatest singular performance in UFC history by one athlete in one fight. Uh, But I cover up cater. So people, people don't know it's my guy, Cal. That's super smart. See, that's a perfect example of when I was asking you how you remain unbiased. You see, you you, you don't necessarily have to, you still have it on your wall, but you'll just cover your guy. (laughs) My only bias is you can see, I have the proper 12, I saw it. I did see it. And if if Conor McGregor is watching and I hope Bruce Buffer is not, I do prefer proper 12 to puncher's chance. Wow. He said it, man. He absolutely said it. So when proper 12 first came out, I was working for flow combat and I got a bottle mailed to me and I taste tested it with four friends, blind taste test against Jameson and Tullamore Dew, which I thought were like the staple cheap Irish whiskeys. It's like, this is what Connor's going after. And yep. we, we all thought we all picked proper 12 to win in a blind taste test. I got to say it was crazy. See, I, and I am no connoisseur and I'm not on the level of you and your buddies at all. But if you're looking for just sort of a 
traditional Irish whiskey as I am, you know, like I, Jim Beam was the first, I like Jim Beam. I'm not afraid <laughs> yeah. to admit it. You know, yeah. it's the first whiskey I drank. I have it downstairs, you know? Um, but yeah, I like proper 12, you know, buffers whiskey. I don't know if I should give him another plug here, Hunter, but um, <laughs> puncher's chance as they call it is, I think it's, it's stronger, like 94 proof or something. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty strong. Maybe not that high, but maybe that's why it was a little, uh, strong for me but uh yeah I gotta try it i'm doing bruce a, a disservice by not having it yet i wonder if i can get it in pennsylvania have him send you a bottle and he can come on the show and you guys can chop it up about by the way pittsburgh i just gotta say most underrated american city okay and i'm just saying like i have traveled the world for the ufc and i'm saying relative to the praise that pittsburgh pennsylvania gets nationally it's america's most underrated city i remember the first time i went didn't love that it said city of champions on the fire hydrants because you know <laughs> sure sure but bro the bridges the backdrops all just beautiful sight lines the restaurants were great like i don't know i haven't spent a ton of time there probably 14 15 nights in my life pittsburgh pennsylvania is america's most underrated city. man that means so much see i tell so many people that but everybody thinks when i do it you know i'm just being a typical they call us yinzers i don't know if you've ever heard the term yinzer but that's like a no. pittsburgh local yinzer yeah. because we All say right. yins instead of like y'all our y'all is yins like what are yins yeah. doing but uh <laughs> i tell everybody and everybody's like ah man you just you're by you love pittsburgh i get it i get it. i'm like just come come see it like you literally just have to see it i'm not even saying go to a restaurant do any of the awesome stuff we have literally just see it and you'll be like damn like that's oh. a city yeah and pnc park and everything else and i oh. will say too i'm not just saying this for this podcast audience i have tweeted this i have mentioned this on instagram so this is certainly not the first time i've said this say it no i'm saying just no i'm saying oh, it's, it's just certainly not the first time i have professed to the world that pittsburgh is thought, america's most underrated city i'm saying okay, i don't just like okay. say this because yeah, it's yeah. a local podcast like you can search john anik underrated city pittsburgh on google and you will find something i guarantee that's, that's beautiful see i thought you were about to say and you were like gearing yourself up to actually say it that pnc park was the most beautiful ballpark in america oh. It's right there. I mean, it's right there. Uh, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And and from afar, I'm in, no. And Roberto Clemente, I used to do projects on that kid every chance on that man every chance I could as a kid. So I got a connection to Pittsburgh. And as a kid who went to Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania, I don't like Philadelphia, right? Because all my friends were Philadelphia sports fans. So I don't like Philly. I don't like the city. Uh, I'm a Pittsburgh guy. Yeah, man, you're you're gaining a whole lot of new fans uh, now talking like that, man. I love it. Dude, you mentioned like you can look it up on Twitter, and that's funny because I was looking at your uh, Twitter before we did this just to see what you've been talking about, what you've been into, and I didn't notice until today that you have 286,000 Twitter followers now. What has that growth been like? I mean, we know kind of you're on TV a lot. People know who you are. Like you said, when you're at UFC events especially, you're a freaking celebrity there. But now any tweet, this is crazy. The world we live in, any tweet could end your career at this point. 286,000 followers, man, that's a, there's a responsibility there. Like, what's that been like? Well, there's no doubt there are things that pop into my mind that I don't tweet or things that I want to trot out there that maybe go right up to the line without crossing it, but I'll end up thinking better of it. Um, obviously, it's uh, a great way to connect with fans. It's a great way to access information, but there is 
you know, some risk mitigation and things that go along with it. I was very reluctant to go on social media 2009, 2010. I went on for the first time because they were literally faunting talent on TV with the handles and they needed something. I was like, just put MMA live below me. We're fine. You know, that's awesome. Um, no, you're right. There's a responsibility that comes with it. And uh, as somebody who has sort of a foul mouth and um, a lot of opinions, but yet works in a part of the journalism field that isn't necessarily rooted in analysis and opinion, sometimes it can be difficult. You know, I've had sports agents say to me, dude, you got to just throw caution to the wind and get in the opinion business and just host a radio show and just let it rip and stop being a play-by-play guy and stop worrying about everybody's feelings. And that's a totally different career path. And uh, yeah. maybe one will get on here if, uh, if we get fired, you never know. Yeah, man, that's, that's kind of what I was going to lead into because the play-by-play grind, as we've said a million times, the grind is crazy. Like what's not that you would ever want to get out of it. Anything like that is not what I'm saying, but how have you sustained your enthusiasm for 10 freaking years doing this, the travel, the preparation and everything. It's very, I don't think people realize because I know even just as a reporter and now as a promoter, like the intricacies of an event are absolutely overwhelming. Like if you want to be 100% prepared and know everything there is to know and be on top of everything, it's a full-time job for sure. 100%. So now you you've got the UFC's insane schedule. Now, like full disclosure, when I was covering the sport, I knew every fighter top to bottom could tell you everything about them. Nowadays, man, I look at some cards and some prelim fighters. I, I didn't know they were in the UFC. Don't know who they are. Don't know where they came from. Couldn't tell you the first thing about them. So for you to stay on top of it at the level you do to not just casually know about a guy but you you talk about like fighters dogs names sometimes i feel like like you know the details about these guys is that is the process itself exciting to you or is the payoff just on fight night the event like what about the job has sustained you at this level of excellence and detail the process still excites me when i'm in a back-to-back it's less exciting right like i'm working rob font and jose aldo on december 4th and as such i will be behind on my ufc 269 prep for the following week so when i sit down and push the reset button on that monday or even sunday after the pay-per-view i'm not going to be super excited to sit down and do fighter card number one of 30 for ufc 269 um but something you said stuck with me about being 100 prepared and you know, preparation has been a cornerstone of my success for lack of a better word, but I'm never 100% prepared, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's always something more that I can do. And I think it's that fear that has sort of kept me going that like, there's always another article I can read. There's always another interview or video that I can ingest. If, if there's a blackout at the arena and we get five more hours to prep, I know I can make use of them. So that's sort of where my anxiety is with the job. It's, yeah, the show formatics can be a pain in the ass and I'm dealing with Microsoft Excel and Microsoft Word and things that have nothing to do with fighting. But, you know, I've said to our producers repeatedly, like, dude, something's going to fall through the cracks when you're putting 15 fights on a car. There's 30 fighters for me to learn and I don't have that much time to learn them. So that's where the anxiety is for me. It's in the preparation. It's not in the performance. And certainly 90% of the fun of the job. I mean, yeah, when I'm sitting down to watch film, or talk to a guy like you and it's sort of part of my job, like, yeah, that's great that I get paid to like watch mixed martial arts film. But 90% of the fun is in fight night because um, the work, it's just arduous. You know, I have a fighter car library behind me of probably five or 6,000 handwritten cards. I mean, it's the volume's just insane. It's awesome that you're keeping them. Is that just for your personal use? No. 
Not at all for my personal use, actually. I don't have a digitized system. I don't necessarily want one. So basically, when I get a new fight card, right, and I'm starting my preparation for December 4th UFC fight night, Font versus Aldo. I go into that library and I find the last fighter card for Rob Font, Jose Aldo, my, my notes from the previous fight, right? Then I start my new Rob Font card. I finish that. And then I check on the old one, see if there's anything that says, oh, his dog Haley has three legs or whatever it is, right? And so I'll add any old notes. And then that Rob Font card gets either repurposed to a fight fan, stowed away or thrown out. Don't tell Buffer. I do throw some things away. Um, But the fighter card library is really the most valuable thing in my house, because if that thing burned down, um, I'd lose all my notes on, on the entire roster. That's crazy. Is there an urge, you know, you talk about a guy like either Font or Aldo, both guys really apply that kind of you know them at this point. You know what I mean? There's not a whole lot of prep, at least from my perspective, that you would have to do to talk about these guys. But do you view it that same way or do you approach them like, hey, 100% need to look at Jose Aldo's resume again, make sure I didn't miss anything. I'm going in full speed. So maybe I don't have the brain power to do what other guys do, but I have found that I need to start from the beginning and do a fresh fighter card. Usually in terms of the film study, I'll go back and watch their last fight, right? So I'll go back and watch Jose Aldo's last fight as I'm taking my notes, listen to the commentary, see if there's anything that maybe I can pick up on. But for me, it's really to jog my memory, right? And so that if I'm rewriting Rob Font's UFC history every time he fights, right, then I'm going to be able to say, oh, yeah, Anthony Smith, you fought Antonio Braganetto in 2013. And he'll be like, dude, why do you remember that insignificant fight? And I'll say, I don't know, but I used to write Antonio Braganetto down 100 (laughs) times that somehow I remember it, you know? So I think it helps me study. It helps me commit things to memory. And then when I'm on the air, I don't necessarily have to look down at the note because I've studied. That's awesome. Have you always been kind of like a stats kid growing up, you know, being a Patriots fan, Celtics, Bruins, whatever it may be, were you always kind of obsessed with the players and their stats? Very much so. Um, The agate page, the box scores. I used to pride myself on reading the Boston Globe sports page cover to cover every single day from as young as I can remember, honestly, probably eight, nine, 10 years old. You know, I had my first byline in a newspaper framed up right above me. Um, Very cool. yeah. I thought I was going to be a print journalist. I ran, ran into too many Chuck Mendenhalls and I had to pivot, you know? Hey man, that guy sucks, right? Why does he have to set the bar so high for everybody else? Ridiculous. I always felt the it's same like, way. Chuck, what other than whiskey, like what are your performance enhancing drugs for your yeah. writing? It's the hat. Like, it's definitely the hat telling you (laughs) man he's the best I'm glad you brought him up he was always a guy that I definitely looked up to and and just like you you know when I was coming up it was always a guy that I put on a pedestal you know when you're young I was you know 19 18 19 years old when I started when you're young and just the chance to talk to those guys a little bit felt so good and you both always made me feel super welcomed and you know grab a beer with you or whatever it may be so I definitely appreciate that man Chuck's in the same class Well, and it's cool to see you sort of in your career trajectory, because when a lot of people leave the MMA space to whatever degree, they don't come back. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I, I had zero intentions of doing it, man. I, uh, summer of 2020 when it it was like the, the COVID summer, the first COVID summer, I guess. And, uh, I quit my job where I was covering the Steelers pit pirates. I was doing that whole thing. 
and uh, just started my own thing. I had always done kind of like the marketing side of things at the same time concurrently with all my jobs. Like when I worked at Flow, I was reporting, but I was actually helping them with marketing more than actual writing and journalism. So I always kind of had that in my back pocket and I started my own thing, got a couple local clients and 247 Fighting Championships was one of the clients. And then about a month in, the owner was like, I want you more involved, man. Like you need to be doing more than just our social media. Like what can we do? So that's how it took shape. I, I definitely didn't intend to, to get back in either, but it pulled me back. So great. And obviously you can leverage all your connections and uh, no, it's going to be exciting. Hopefully I can get to that area and get to a show at some point. You know? Man, that would be so cool. And I'm glad you brought that up. Cause that's one more thing I wanted to ask you before we get off here and I take up any more of your time, but I'm sure the UFC occupies, you know, 95% of your time, as we've said repeatedly through this podcast, but do you get a chance to ever check out local, maybe CES, any local fights in, in New England? So I live in South Florida now. So uh, at times I have <clears throat> been able to check out random offerings down here, but the schedule is so prohibitive, you know, yeah. and because all of our shows are Saturday nights and it's nights and weekends, yep. those weekends are pretty sacred when, when I am here. So, uh, sure. and candidly, even when I'm not working the UFC, like when Misha Tate fights Ketlin Vieta last weekend, uh, circumstantially, I did watch the main event live, but for the most part, I'm watching that all the day after, right before I do my podcast, because, uh, you know, got to put the kids in the, in the center of your focus when you're home and, and I'd have it no other way, honestly. So yeah, that makes perfect sense. And and the only reason I ask is because I find with a lot of people, you know, I've been to Conor McGregor fights, covered Conor McGregor fights, felt that atmosphere, but like there's something special about local MMA. And I was oh, just yeah. curious if, if you felt the same thing, like when you're there, the atmosphere is genuinely just different. There's something about it. There is. I, I don't know if it's, the energy from the crowd. It seems like most of the time when I'm at local MMA shows, these local kids have like these huge fan bases, you know, yep. it's like, how do you have a fan base bigger than, you know, some of the guys on the UFC roster, you know, and you do see certain guys come into the UFC and they have these tremendous local followings. So yeah, no, there's definitely a special atmosphere involved when it comes to those local MMA shows. For sure. I mean, you think about a UFC card and like I could come in and say I'm a fan of whoever, you know, I like I'm rooting for Glover Teixeira, let's say, and I'm at the event, but it's so much different at a local show. It's like I'm not just rooting for Glover Teixeira. I'm his brother or his mom, like moms, yeah. dads, uncles, cousins. Like I went to school with this guy, I've been his best friend from childhood like that. You can't replicate that. There's just no getting around it. And I think that has helped cultivate and, and grow the UFC fan base a lot, right? Because you have people who maybe will support a local fighter to whatever degree, and they don't even know what MMA is an acronym for. And then all yeah. of a sudden they see the sport live, they get into it a little bit with a local guy. And then the next thing you know, um, they're more obsessed with the UFC than you or I am. So it works in, uh, in very cool ways. You experienced that too, because I remember when I was covering the sport, I would I, I would bump into fans all the time that literally knew more than me about the UFC. And I was like, bro, like I get paid to do this and you are straight up schooling me right now. <laughs> yeah. For me, what's funny is that everybody wants to talk to me about my broadcast partner, Joe Rogan, and you can understand why, but I obviously have a lot of demands on my time. So I can't listen to every episode of the Joe Rogan experience, but most American men seem to, right? Mm -hmm. So I can't tell you how many people want to talk to me about Joe or get a line to Joe or get Joe's cell phone number, or want to ask me about a specific episode of the Joe Rogan experience. And more often than not, I'll say, I missed that one, you know, because I got so much other 
stuff going on, you know? Um, but it's crazy, man. It's crazy how the fan base has evolved. It's crazy how much COVID helped the MMA fan base. Right. I mean, I say that obviously not in the best of terms, but I mean, people were just home watching TV. Like you, you should see how rabid our fans are now, you know, at these live events now that they're allowed back in the building. It's, it's a tr tremendous time for the sport. It's crazy to think of, and it's awesome that you're a part of it still, man. Like I said, all the way back to the MMA live chat days, you've been one of the good guys from day one. So it's been crazy to see your career ascent and just knowing that you're nowhere near done yet, man. I appreciate you taking the time. Like I said, I know you're super busy, man. It means so much to me and to our listeners to have you here. Of course, brother. It's great to catch up with you. It's great to hear your voice, the dulcet tones, by the way. Ooh, I mean, how good did like the tone that. sound? You know? um, but thank you, brother. Stay in touch. I wish you guys all the best. And, uh, you know, anything I can do to help promote and support 247, you know I'm here, brother. It means so much, man. And uh, I'll text you for Joe Rogan's cell phone number when we're done. Yeah. Get <laughs> no, my phone. It says Rogan 2017, Rogan 2018, Rogan 2019, Rogan Austin, Texas, you know, um, constantly changing. So, uh, you know, yeah. You know, I was going to end it, but just one more question along those lines, just because you you, you kind of brought it up there, but have you ever been around another person with the celebrity that Joe Rogan has? Like, is it just madness to even be around him? It's wild. It's yeah. wild. Right. Because when you get to a certain point of celebrity, um, people st lose their consideration, right? It's like, I'll stop at nothing to get a picture with Joe Rogan because I'm going to be ki kicking myself if I don't do it, you know? Wow. So, yes, I am thankful that I am not on the celebrity level of Rogan or even Daniel Cormier. You know, yeah. it's an interesting navigation going through life as a public figure, as a famous person. And thankfully, I am not on that level because, um, you know, I don't know. I just think some people are very comfortable with it. Um, I think other people are not. And, you know, there are eyes constantly on you. You know, it's mm -hmm. an uncomfortable feeling, I think, for a lot of people. But Joe handles it well. He really does. That's awesome. And I'm glad I'm glad it is as it seems, because that's always how he's projected. It seems like he's handled the celebrity extremely well. And I know people get on his case all the time for everything. There's clickbait articles off every podcast he ever does. But to me, it seems like he's been the same dude since I've known Joe Rogan. So it's just cool to see that. Well, like we'll do a pay-per-view in Buffalo and we'll get done and he maybe wants to go out to dinner and the entire Buffalo Bills offensive line and Tyrod Taylor are there to take a picture with Joe Rogan, who doesn't watch the NFL and probably hasn't seen a snap since he was in Newton, Massachusetts in 1985, right? Right, right. So he sticks around, but it's like, he's trying to go to dinner. You got the whole Bill's offensive line. there looking for photos. You know what I mean? So um, I give him a lot of credit for how he has, has handled everything in front yeah. of me. No doubt. Well, you've got your 286,000 Twitter followers of your own, you know, being a little modest. I, I've seen it at events. You're, you're, you're famous. You're famous, John. It's changed a lot since the pandemic, obviously, you know, going back to those first few live events was a different navigation for me, but um, you know, it is what it is. It's hard, right? Because as, especially as a play-by-play -play guy, you're trying to keep the focus on the athletes and off of yourself, but right. yet, I compete 25 times a year, even though I'm not fighting. Right. And these guys are doing two or three shows a year if they're lucky. So like it or not, you know, the UFC is having us do media scrums and having us be forward facing. And, um, you know, I take the responsibility as a ambassador promoter to whatever degree, very seriously. It's awesome. And it shows in your work and it shows in your career career trajectory like we've said all podcasts it's it's awesome man like i said to see where you are today where you're going and just that you took the time today for our humble little podcast means so much man thank you thank you man i appreciate you and uh excited to see where this all shakes out for you as well brother for sure